Hi there. Thank you for joining us on the Redeemer Church Podcast. Here at Redeemer, we exist to see Christ exalted in our church, community, and world. It is our mission to lead people into the presence of God, devotion to His Word, authentic fellowship with others, and discovering their ministry. We hope that this podcast is just one of the ways you connect to God's presence this week. Let's check out this week's message. Well, good morning. It's nice to see you all. I do want to make sure that you know, I mean, we are relaunching our small group ministry. If you want to sign up to get more information, there is a kiosk right out these doors. So do connect with that team, put your email and your name down, and they're going to get in touch with you for more information on that. Also, if you are a guy, we are running a men's breakfast on Saturday, August 27th from 8 to 9 Uh, And we have a few different keynote speakers uh, involved in that, and Adam and myself will be talking about the vision of Redeemer, uh, why it's important for men to get together and gather and spend time with one another in fellowship. So mark your calendar on that. We ask that you RSVP online for that as well. So let's jump into God's Word together. We're carrying on in Romans, and we find ourselves in Romans chapter 11, 17 to 32, so please open your Bible or your Bible app there with me. Uh, Many scholars believe that the heart of the book of Romans can actually be found in Romans 9 to 11. We often push it a little earlier, and we love to grab on to Romans 6 to 8 because that's theologically rich. But Paul, if we remember, is addressing a real historical problem. And in chapter 9, it seems as though he begins a shift into dealing with that problem head on. So chapters 1 to 8 are theologically rich. He's laying out a correct understanding of the gospel. And then he uses that understanding of the gospel to connect with the issue on the ground in the church at Rome, which is that the Gentile Christians and the Jewish Christians are experiencing hostility as they're worshiping together. Remember, the Gentile Christians looked down upon their Jewish Christian brothers and sisters for their strict adherence to the law. In other words, because they believed a more accurate version of the gospel, the Gentile Christians are beginning to feel a bit superior to the Jewish Christians. Paul, however, will have none of it. And here's what Paul has to say in Romans chapter 11, 17 to 24, and 30 to 32. He says this, If some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider therefore the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. 
After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wowed by nature and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Just as you who are at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he might have mercy on them all. There's a lot going on in this passage, and we're going to dive through a lot of it. But confession time. Before we get started, I have a confession to make. I do not have a green thumb. I mean, if it's a green plant, if it's maybe green at all, I know how to make it brown in no time. I mean, test me. Give me a plant, I can kill it for you in less than a day, I promise. A couple of weeks ago, my neighbor across the street asked Brandy Brandy and I if we could water her ferns, take care of her ferns for her while she was gone on vacation. Actually, what happened was my neighbor asked my wife, if we could watch them. And like a good neighbor, my wife says yes. However, my wife was also right then getting in the car to drive to the airport, to Flagstaff, Arizona. So while I'm at work, I receive this text message that says, Dave, there are ferns on the front porch that you need to take care of for these next seven days while I'm gone. Terrified. It's going to be 105 this week, sweetheart. I can't I'm never, I couldn't keep these alive in good conditions, let alone terrible conditions. I promise you, I watered these ferns twice a day, all the time. Now, I don't know if this is proper fern etiquette or not, but they became brown very quickly. I'm not very good with plants. She had just taken care of my dog for a week, which seems like a much harder task, right? The whole week. So the whole time as I'm watching these plants go brown, I'm going, I just wish you had a dog. This would have been easier. Could you just, could I have adopted your dog for a week? Brandy did come home, resuscitated these plants. She saved me a Lowe's run, you know, to buy new ferns, because that's what was going to happen. All that to say, did you know that ingrafting branches into vines or trees is a real thing? Did you know this? So many of you are shaking your heads, which again, only exemplifies the fact that I do not have a green thumb. I didn't know this. I thought Paul was just making this extreme hypothetical example to make a point. It absolutely blew my mind that you can sever off the branch or a vine branch off of one vine or tree, and you can cut a hole into another tree or vine and insert that limb into it, tape it up, and it will eventually grow together as one. This is crazy stuff. So if it happened to have blown your mind, which it doesn't appear that it shocked anybody out there, let <laughs> him alone, uh, I'm going to tell you later what that's for. Maybe later you can tell me what that's for. Uh, as I clearly don't know. Uh, but Paul is not just using a crazy hypothetical example. He's giving this ingrafting branches imagery to communicate four big ideas about the gospel. 
And these big ideas are grace, justice, kindness, and mission. Grace, justice, kindness, and mission. In Romans eleven seventeen, Paul says this, you have been grafted in and now share in the nourishing, sh- nourishing sap from the olive root. Think about that for a moment. Grafted in. In other words, we did nothing to deserve being put into the root of the nourishing sap from the olive tree or the olive root. In fact, it's only by God's grace that we can call ourselves a part of his family. It's only by his grace do we have this nurturant, uh, rich life empowered by the Holy Spirit. We didn't nothing to deserve having this. It's by God's grace. So let's take a quick refresher on what grace is. J.I. Packer says that the grace of God is love freely shown towards guilty sinners, contrary to their merit, and indeed in defiance of their demerit. It is God showing goodness to persons who only deserve severity and had no reason to expect anything but severity. Thomas Aquinas says that in order for grace to exist, three things are necessary. The first is love, because grace must begin with love. There has to be a person or a being with love in their heart, and that is the starting place of grace. The second is the giving of a gift. So within the love of the posture of a person, they are moved in such a way to offer a gift in order to deepen a relationship. That's the second part that needs to be present for grace. Now, the last part is of, is of crucial importance. It completes the circle. If you don't have this last part, you can't effectively say that grace is present. And that last part is thankfulness. A thankful heart receives grace or the gift given to them because it knows that this is a special gift. So it demonstrates gladness, thankfulness, reciprocity. If we lose our posture of thankfulness for God's grace, then over time, we will become prideful. And we begin looking around at other people, comparing ourselves against them. And it is precisely at that moment, precisely when our posture shifts, and we forget about the gift given to us, and we start comparing ourselves and our actions and our attitudes and behaviors to the people around us and start uttering, well, I might not be perfect, but I'm not as bad as them. That when this posture shifts, that's when our posture or our heart has shifted from faith to legalism. And legalism does not end in salvation. Because when we lose our thankful disposition, we begin to believe the lie that we earned our salvation, that we were good enough, that maybe the Holy Spirit, maybe the grace of God gave us a platform and a restart, but now I'm on my own and I'm doing my best and no one compares to me. And once we shift to that posture, we have lost this thankful disposition that allows us to remember that we've received grace. 
And it prevents us from realizing that we are to be a conduit of grace for others so that they may experience grace. We're not here to be condemning those that we see around us, which is the result, right, of comparative living. To say, like, if you could just live the way that I live, then you're going to be great. But to turn to our neighbor, our brother and sister in Christ, and to say that there is a gift available for you too. Furthermore, when we lose our posture of thankfulness, we also cut ourselves off from the life-producing sap. We cut ourselves off from the power of the Holy Spirit. We start resting in our own power because after all, we got this. We don't need help. We don't need the power of the Holy Spirit. I can do this on my own. And we transition from a branch that produces fruit to a branch that is dead. And this is the situation of the Roman church. The Gentile Christians have lost their posture of thankfulness. And they have begun to look at their Jewish brothers and sisters as undeserving of God's grace. Of course, Paul will not put up with such an attitude. So keeping with this gardening metaphor that he brings forward, he reminds the Gentile Christians about what happens when a branch gets disconnected from its roots, when it gets disconnected from the source. When the branch is dead, it will fall off to make room for life. So here's what he says in verses 20 to 21. Branches were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. This verse is about the justice of God. Now, if we tend to have the wrong idea when we think about God's justice. When we think of the term justice, it tends to bring negative connotations to our mind. We immediately begin to think about retribution, that that person is going to get what they deserve, right? I mean, that, that tends to be our posture when we think about justice. But at the heart of justice is a notion of protection, Yes, on the one hand, justice serves to give back to someone what they rightfully deserve in both instances. It means penalty for a person for enacting a certain behavior or attitude that's against the law. And it also serves to give the person that has suffered the injustice things back, retribution back, the goods back in whatever way they can. But on the other hand, justice serves as a deterrent. By making an example of what happens when we participate in wrong behavior against another. With this in mind, justice actually establishes a boundary of protection. It ensures that we are protected. It protects the innocent. One of the reasons a dead branch falls from a vine or a tree is so that the other branches can thrive. It enables those branches to be able to receive the sunlight and space necessary to grow and to develop fruit. The dead branch was not only taking up space, it was absorbing nutrients or deflecting nutrients 
that weren't going to be used for anything. So Paul is reminding the Gentile Christians that if we lose our posture of thankfulness, which removes ourselves from the source of the nourishing sap, then we'll fall off the vine. God will give us what we have been demanding from him with our actions. He'll allow us to depart from his presence, from his protection, from his nourishment, which in turn helps protect those who remain in his presence. It offers them security. So if we've lost our posture of thankfulness, if we've lost kind of It's not this losing of grace, but if we shut ourselves off from the grace giver and we find that we have situated in that space where we've become this comparative body, where we're looking at all the people around us going, you know what, you're just not quite as good as me. You don't deserve grace. And if you happen to be situating in that space this morning and you're like, oh no, I do not want to fall off the vine, there is hope. There is something that we can do. It's what Paul tells us in verse 22. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. What Paul is doing here is he's challenging us to rekindle our love of Christ by reflecting on his scandalous grace. And once we recapture the wonder of what God has done for us, then we go on and demonstrate the same type of radical grace and kindness to others. That's because belief and actions are linked. Here, we tend to think in the United States that I can believe something that's independent of my actions, but I'm here to tell you that my faith in Christ is not the same type of faith that I have when I think about George Washington, right? My belief in George Washington as a person ought to be different than my belief in Jesus Christ. My belief that George Washington was a historic figure doesn't impact my day-to-day. However, my belief that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior ought to impact my day-to-day. And if our actions contradict what we say we believe, then we don't actually believe what we say. I'm going to say that again. If our actions contradict what we say we believe, then we don't actually believe what we say. Jesus' half-brother James puts it this way. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. James is pretty blunt here. But our actions are the first fruits of the posture of our heart. So if we are connected to the source of nourishing sap, then we're going to produce the good fruit that's reflective 
of that connection. However, if we've lost connection to the nourishing sap, the giver and the sustainer of life, then we will not produce any fruit. So here's the paradox. We can't do enough good things to save ourselves. However, we also can't say that we have faith if that faith doesn't produce good actions. I'm going to say that again. This is really important. We can't do good, enough good works to save ourselves. We are reliant on the grace of Jesus Christ. However, if we've accepted that grace, there ought to be fruit demonstrated by that. So we can't say that we have faith if that faith doesn't produce good works. Good actions are a reflection of God's Spirit living within us. Because without His Spirit, we are not capable of producing good works. Earlier, I promised that we would get back to the purpose of engrafting branches. And then I'll tell you something that you already know. I didn't know this, but I'm going to tell you something that you already knew. Branches are engrafted into a vine or a tree for a couple of reasons. First, it's to bring life back to dying trees or dying vines. These new branches stimulate new life in old vines. The second is to either produce more fruit or to produce better fruit. And I think this is exactly why Paul is using this metaphor of ingrafting. It's the reminder that when we look to bring others and other people into the vine, into the family of Christ, we only make the vine stronger and more productive. In verse 31, Paul tells the Gentile Christians this, So they too have become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. So what's what's going on here? Well, Paul is basically telling the Gentile Christians that the whole reason why they are able to come to faith in Jesus Christ is because the Jews faithfully stewarded the law and the promises. The law and the promises were passed down from faithful Jews from one generation to the next. And now, you Gentile Christians, Paul is saying, benefit from their stewardship by receiving the grace of Jesus Christ. That this stewardship of the law and promises have led to the birth of the Messiah. It has led to the grace that's available. And now you benefit from their stewardship. Therefore... It is your responsibility to share the grace of Jesus Christ with them so that they can benefit from your stewardship of the gospel. In other words, Paul is telling the Gentile Christians that they are to be a people on a mission. Friends, we are called to be missional people sharing the good news of Jesus Christ in our families, neighborhoods, and workplaces. Not only through our words, but also with our actions. But how do we start? 
I had a conversation with someone actually a couple days ago that said, I want to engage my neighbors. I want to engage my workplace. I want to tell people the good news of what's happening in my life. But where do I start? And so I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about what, what are the steps? And there's three practical steps, I think. We are called to be missional people, and we start on that journey by caring well. We build relationships with people that are already around us. We listen to their stories. We hear their passions and their pain. And in response, we act like the hands and feet of Jesus by showering them with love and support. And as that relationship develops, we will undoubtedly earn the right to speak into their lives as a trusted friend. And when that happens, when we've earned the right to speak into their lives, we teach well. We make sure that we are not applying quick-fix bandages to big problems, but we truly understand how the gospel relates to them in their current situation, in what they are going through right then and there. And we speak to them about the hope that is available in Jesus Christ. And if we care well and we teach well, we just might gain their permission to lead them somewhere. They might let us take them on a journey. And if we do, we must lead them well. In this manner, we become a spiritual mentor, helping them to pursue Christ and Christ's priorities in this world better and better. This is the Christian call, the one Paul is challenging us to take up. And this morning, we have the beautiful opportunity to demonstrate our faith in Christ through our actions, by participating in communion together. As you prepare to receive the elements, reflect on the scandalous grace of Christ for you. Allow the elements to reconnect you to the source of nourishing sap. Bring a posture of thankfulness, of gladness for what Christ has done for you. And begin praying that God would reveal to you the people he would have you engraft into the vine. So at this time, I'm going to invite our stewards or communion swords to come forward. I'm going to read for us the words of institution from Paul. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup It's the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we stand in awe of your grace. Lord, forgive us for those times where we just feel like we've got this. 
that you gave us a clean start and then we start working and functioning out of our own power. And for those moments where we have been tempted to look around to our right and left and go, you know, my life is on so much better track than that person's. And we forget to reach out to them and share the same grace that we've been given. Lord, move in our hearts in such a way that we are compelled to share the amazing gift that you've given with us, with everyone around us. As we feast on your body and blood, may it empower us to enlarge in your family. For your namesake. Amen. Once again, thank you for listening to the Redeemer Church Podcast. To stay connected to all that God is doing here at Redeemer, visit our website at RedeemerTulsa.org or connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Have a blessed week.